Welcome to tonight's Walkley Media Talk, hosted by our event partner, the State Library of New South Wales. I'm Louisa Graham and I'm the General Manager of the Walkley Foundation and I'm pleased to welcome you all here tonight, including those who have found us on Meetup, <coughs> which is one of those uh, modern age of <coughs> social networking, social media, so pleased to have you here this evening as well. I'd first like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet the elders past and president of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Now, the Walkley Foundation is proud to present tonight's talk, and this is the latest in an ongoing series. Independently funded, the Walkley Foundation's core mission is to foster excellence in journalism and support a robust and independent media which deepens and enriches democracy. And part of that tradition is facilitating important conversations about the media and recognising those journalists who are doing great work, which is exactly why we're here tonight. And I think you're going to enjoy this one. Our special guest speaker tonight is Pamela Williams, and she is no stranger to the Walkleys. She has won six of them. I think she must be up there on our list of, of the most Gold Walkley, or the most Walkley won journalists, certainly. And uh, she won the Gold Walkley in 1998 for her coverage of the Australian docks. And as an investigative reporter for the Australian Financial Review, she's covered politics and the business world and is author of two best-selling books. Her first, The Victory, covered the rise of the Howard government. Her second, for which she won last year's Gold Walkley, uh, sorry, not Gold Walkley, Gold Walkley Book Award, is Killing Fairfax, published by HarperCollins. And that's what we're going to hear about tonight. And in the book, Pamela examines the fortunes of Fairfax Media, inspired by the huge rounds of redundancies and cuts at the company after years of challenges to its newspaper business model. And Killing Fairfax offers insights into the media industry and into a company all Australian journalists continue to watch closely. And it's a fascinating read for anyone who's ever picked up a newspaper in Australia, and I can highly recommend it. Very easy to read, and, uh, and it'll have you gripped to the edge of your your seat. So please join in the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag, hashtag Walkleys. Just make sure that you have your phones switched on silent. Now I'll hand you over to our moderator for this evening. That's Richard Aidy. And I'm sure once you hear Richard speak, you'll recognise his voice. He's the host of ABC's Radio National Media Report. And Richard began his journalistic career in uh, 1980. And, and I've lost the last number on this document. But, but 1988, <laughs> fantastic. And he has worked in three countries and has Just made... A boy. <laughs> and has also made award-winning documentaries. So after more than 20 years, he remains interested in everything. One could say he's a lifelong media junkie. So thanks very much, Richard. Over to you. Uh, thanks, Louisa. Um, I, I was just thinking halfway through that, it, you, you know, it, you could have said that... Between the two of them, Pamela Williams and Richard Aidy have won six Walkleys. And <laughs> it would have been factually accurate <laughs> and, a di and a great deal kinder. But um, good evening, everyone. Uh, obviously, tonight I'm going to be asking Pamela some questions, uh, and a lot of them about the book and about uh, the events and the issues that she traverses in the book. But not all of them, because there's other things to talk about too, I think, as we look forward. Um, and that'll probably take us um, maybe 40 minutes or so. So get us through to perhaps quarter two or a shade before that. Um, then I'll open it up to uh, questions from the floor. When we get there, just bear in mind um, that the Walkley has um, already paid a lavish fee uh, to me. Uh, 
for the showing off and the name dropping and the pontificating, they went for the full package. And so none of you, none of you would, I'm sure none of you would think about doing that anyway. Uh, but if you were, you don't need to. I'm just saying. I want to start with the, the process of writing the book because the key to it is the access to and the cooperation of James Packer and Lachlan Murdoch. How did you get that? Uh, well, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a question with an answer that has a long tail in a way, Richard, because I um, had known both of them from my reporting work for a long time. Um, James Packer in particular, I will say, was always very, very difficult to report on. He, uh, you know, I started reporting on him for long features in about 2006 and I found him back then to be difficult, obstructive, going over my head to my bosses, trying to squash the stories, all that sort of thing. But when I, and I was of course told to persevere by my boss who wanted a profile of him in 2006 and it was, um, and between the pressure from my boss, my editor at the time, and James Packer, you know, they just about equaled each other. So there was no getting out of the story. So I had to just keep saying to James Packer, well, I'm sorry, I'm proceeding. And finally through, you know, it was just a sort of a lucky stroke at some point. I said something, you know, I would email him every, you know, couple of days and he would say no and haven't you given up? And I'd write back and say, well, I haven't. I still have to do the story. And he'd go, well, now I've spoken to your editor and have you given up? And I'd go, well, no, well, he's spoken to me and I'm keeping going. So this went on for a long time. So I got to know him and I did about three profiles of him like that. So I knew him from that process. He also knew, I guess, from that process the way that I worked, which was that once I got him on the hook and got him talking and I'd get him emailing replies, I would fact check everything with him to an extreme degree. A, because I like to be right, and uh, B, because someone like James Packer, not that he's more equal than anyone else, but you know he's got a lot of money behind him to sue you if you have something wrong, and you want to be doubly right. So I would fact-check everything in a sort of panic-stricken way, um, and almost the ands and the buts in the sentences. So he knew the way that I worked with fact-checking. And I think when it came to um, getting access for the book, you know, it sort of started with, uh, you know, complaints, but, you know, some of the story was that it had started with, you know, I had a lunch and he and Lachlan complained about no one wrote, no one knew what they'd done in the early days. And I kind of said, well, I'll write that, you know, why don't you talk about it? No, they weren't going to talk about it for a story. And when I said I would be interested... Is this when you had already planned to write the book or was this no, what led this to the... No, this is the beginning. The, it. Yes, ah. this, is what led, this is what led to it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I said, well, you know... I will write it, you know, they said, well, we're not going to just talk to, you know, you, you write a story, you journalists, and it's gone in a flash, you know, and you don't write anything, it's a long story, and a lot of things happened in the old days when we were fighting Fairfax, and I thought, and I said, well, will you talk if it's a book? And they said, yeah, we might, and off, off it went, really like that, and so... I then, um, so I had the kind of preliminary sort of agreement from them that they would talk because it was a lunch the three of us had together for various crazy reasons. At Rockpool. At Rockpool, mm. yes, yes. What so. did you have, Pam? <laughs> well, I just had like panic in the stomach, really, because I'm thinking. 
<laughs> what, you know, do I dare even eat? And they're having a drink and I'm thinking, oh, I'm not having a drink under any circumstance. They're going, have a glass of wine. I'm saying, no, thank you. Um, thinking I've got to listen to everything that goes on here. And uh, they were really in fine fettle, the two of them. And uh, they really had a lot to say about Fairfax and how hopeless a company they thought it was and what they had done over the years to Fairfax. And so I was absolutely amazed listening to it all and hearing the two sides and their versions and I thought if this turned out to be correct any of it this is a really unbelievable story and I have no idea if it's correct or if it's a pack of you know self-congratulatory invention by them. So once they agreed to talk to me they, so I think Packer knew the way that I work with lots of fact-checking. Um, he agreed to talk and he said he wouldn't interfere and he would tell, the, tell me, answer my questions straight as long as I was writing the truth. And Lachlan Murdoch was pretty similar. Um, and so I embarked on this kind of mad um, process of trying to interview them both, covering many, many, many years. Mm. And at the same time, they're so busy... And, uh, you know, I had a warning from uh, someone I knew, uh, from someone at the time, um, my partner said, you know, if you don't get them on the record fast, he said, they could just go off to another business deal. They could just leave the country. They could change their minds. And I thought, oh, that's right. So I actually threw myself into it for the first few months of the book, interviewing just them as much as I could, and then fanned out to do all the interviewing other people who could either corroborate or shoot down what they said after I got them on the record. So who was, who was hardest to reel in, not, not outside those big two? Mm, um, uh, the top layers of Fairfax. Lots of people were very, very difficult to find, I might add, because a lot actually, of what I was... The tricky thing for you was you were an employee yeah. of Fairfax yeah. at the time. Yeah, I was... Uh, How did that go? Well, it was. Uh, it, uh, I think the, the the idea of a, another Fairfax book being written because there were a couple, and um, and um, you know that were doing the rounds of gossip columns that were going to be done. The idea of another one, or a different one, and was certainly one by me, actively working at the company. You wouldn't say it was welcome with open arms. Um, and there was a you know a bit of effort to say to me, well, why don't you just write you know write for the paper and you know forget about this. Uh, but I, I really wanted to do it and I sort of explained what my motivation was, which was to find out what had happened at the start of the internet age to Fairfax. Because um, I didn't know what had happened. I didn't know how it was that we had ended up in the trouble that we ended up in. And yet I had these people telling me stories about how they had stolen the classified advertising from Fairfax and they'd invested, this is Packer and Murdoch, and mm. how they'd invested in all the digital companies. And um, and so I wanted to find out. So I said, look, I really want to do this book. And, 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 I, and they gave me, they gave me uh, time off without pay and my job to come back to it at the end. And they were very decent. Well, we're going to, we're going to walk through these, these digital companies. And just before we do that... I want to touch on something else, and it is something you talk about in the book, but it's kind of a separate matter, and that's the whole issue with Foxtel. Mm. And I had no idea about this. Essentially, Fairfax and the ABC were a bees away from a deal to supply the news for the then-new Foxtel, 
if yes. only Michael Hoy could have kept his mouth shut a bit longer. Oh no, there, there, you know, I think there are so there are so many moments in the in the history of Fairfax contemporaneously since the 1995 or thereabouts when uh, uh, when the whole digital digital and um, uh, digital TV, all the sort of things that started to, the the origins of it all started to take shape. And yes, Fairfax in the mid 90s, um, at a time when uh, telecommunications in Australia had cha was changing so much, and there was Optus, and there was Telstra, and there was cable, and people could set up these companies and um, uh, and and have them delivered through pay television. And uh, Fairfax, yes, Fairfax and the ABC um, had a great big deal to create a 24-hour news channel. Um, which they were going to then sell to the um, platform providers, which at the time was going to be Optus and Foxtel. Um, and uh, oddly, and, and uh, so the whole 24-hour news channel was being put together. There was studios built out at the ABC. It had to be separately funded. And it was going to be sold, as I say, hopefully as an operating 24-hour channel based on a sort of a CNN type thing. Um, and I look back now, and you know, an oddity, an oddity of, of those old times is that I was actually offered and asked to come and be the news director of the 24-hour news channel in around about 1995. And my then editor at the Financial Review, Greg Highwood, um, today the chief executive of uh, Fairfax, um, um, you know, put on all the charm and was fabulous and persuaded me to stay at Fairfax. I didn't go to the 24-hour ABC News Channel, which was being put together by Kim Williams, who later, of course, became chief executive of News, um, News Corporation. So uh, that was all getting... They were about to announce it, that they'd done the deal to sell this 24-hour news channel to Foxtel, owned by the Murdochs, owned by News Corporation, and uh, Rupert was in town to have a, an extravagant um, This is the Hayman Island. On Hayman Island with Tony Keating Blair, next Prime Minister of the UK, yes, he's here. Yes. One of the great big get-togethers Rupert does around the world. And uh, Fairfax was literally about to sign on the dotted line and ha with the ABC and have this, this deal to supply the news channel to Foxtel when... Um, one of the reporters at Fairfax got onto the story, went up to see an executive at Fairfax up in his, you know, um, uh, his executive suite and asked about it and got briefed on the story and promptly wrote it in the next day's paper. Fairfax on the cusp of signing to sell 24-hour news channel to Murdoch. So Rupert happens to be in Australia to have an extravagant party with Tony Blair and Paul Keating and all of his executives to celebrate many things, including opening Fox Studios here, and he picks up the newspaper, picks up the Fairfax newspapers, and it's not in one Fairfax newspaper, but it's in all three, that that Fairfax and the ABC are about to be selling a news channel to his Foxtel. So he picks up the phone and he says, over my dead body. And he gets, the message goes through, and within five minutes the whole thing is killed as the guys are standing in the office of Foxtel with all their lawyers waiting to sign the contracts and uh, the champagne's in the fridge and they're waiting to sign these contracts. They left the champagne there, didn't they? Yes, they did. 
they had they had people from overseas as well, um, from Cox Communications. They were involved in this deal for the the channel, and uh, the guy there, Lindsay Gardner, who was out from Cox, um, he'd bought the champagne. He'd put it in the fridge, ready for the, you know five minutes later they'd have signed to sell this to Foxtel. Meanwhile, Rupert's on the phone somewhere, you know, in Australia in a hotel room, going, "Kill that thing right now." They are not they are not doing a deal with my company and get rid of it. So it was destroyed. And uh, Lindsay Gardner, um, uh, who uh, was an overseas executive, you know, was completely flabbergasted. And they drove off, leaving the champagne behind, and the whole thing was dead in the water. I'd have nipped back for it, I reckon. <laughs> uh, before we're going to walk through in a moment, um, seek and realestate.com.au and car sales. But before we do. Can we get an indication of what those three companies are worth now and what Fairfax is worth now? Yes, well, I did. I, I, I can tell you that because um, it was. I was just thinking about this afternoon, so I, I actually looked up the market capitalisations of those companies um, just to check it for my own interest. Um, and if you think that, you know, 10 years ago or so, Fairfax was worth about nine or ten, nine billion. So the companies that took Fairfax's um, classified advertising, Seek, which took the employment ads and put them online, they're now worth $5.7 billion, share price $17, this is this afternoon. Realestate.com, the, uh, the uh, you know, we buy, get all your property. The market cap, which belongs to News Corp, the market cap is $6.2 billion and the share price is $47. Carsales.com, which uh, took away all of Fairfax's um, um, auto um, advertising in the newspapers, that market capitalisation $2.7 billion and their share price is $11.40. And Fairfax's market capitalisation is up now quite handsomely and it's $2.1 billion and the share price is $0.89. Cents. So well, I make it 14.6 that the three of them are worth. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. That's right. Well, let's, um, let's kind of... Because the, the, the thing about this is, and I didn't know this until I read the book, was that essentially Fairfax had a chance with all of them. Yes, yes, it and, did. And in some more than others. So, yeah. so seek. Do you think that Fairfax had a genuine chance to get in, not on the ground floor, but pretty early? Look, I th you know, the... the Brothers, the Bassett brothers who started Seek from dreams and ideas and being young guys and they thought, you know, God, there's all this classified advertising and all these newspapers and it must be worth a fortune. There's oceans and oceans of it. And if we can knock off just a bit of that and put it online, you know, boy, could we have a company. Now, they were very proud of their company and I think that they might have uh, been able to have Fairfax in as an investor if Fairfax had persuaded them that it respected them. But they always got the impression from Fairfax when Fairfax executives would come to visit, including the chief executive, they always got the impression that Fairfax was saying, oh, well, OK, so you young guys, so you think you're doing pretty well here and, uh, well, you know, we might do something with you down the track sometime. And they always felt insulted. Mm. They always felt insulted. They were high-handed with them. They were high-handed. And even Fairfax, you know, to be in defence of Fairfax, the company, it was a cannibalisation issue as well. Fairfax, you know, if it goes and puts its ads online and, and you, you know, it's a dollar for um, 
uh, if it says, you know, it's 10 cents for an online ad and it's a dollar for a line in a newspaper, you're going to take the dollar. But uh, anyway, so, so the Sikh boys didn't want to do business with Fairfax because they felt it was very high-handed. When James Packer came along later, he walks into the room and he says to them, you guys have won the game and I just think you're so fabulous and I just want to invest in you and you're marvellous. Well, he didn't have anything to lose because he didn't have uh, ads that could be cannibalised. But on the other hand, they were so charmed by the respect. He, he gave them a bit of love, actually, he, didn't he? Yeah. And they said later to me, they said, look, you know, he was the first person who actually said, look, you've won the game. He showed us the respect of what he understood what we'd done. Um, with car sales, Fairfax did have about an 11% piece of that company. Yeah, they got it when they did a deal with Yahoo. Yes, they got it sort of by accident in a, a way. Again, they got the atmospherics wrong, didn't they? They did. So Fairfax went down to visit them and to say, look, we're going to have boardroom rights and we're going to do this and that. And Actually, they said, surprise, we own 11%. That's right. We're coming down. That's exactly right. They didn't ring up and say, look, we think you're so marvellous and we've been battling to get a piece of your company for so long and you're so fantastic and would you let us come... You know, they sort of sailed in instead again on the high horse. The high horse was getting higher and they're climbing up on it and, and the car salespeople sort of instantly freaked and said, right, this is a predator in our midst. And they rang up James Packer and said, would you like to come buy a bit of us? We hear how fabulous you are from the Sikh guys who founded Sikh. So please come and have a piece of our company. And he, mar he marched in and, and took it over. Um, and with realestate.com... This is the biggest one of the lot, really. This is the absolute gigantic one. And that was a little company that was dying, just dying away. So... Toward the end of the, uh, the year of the Sydney Olympics, John Nyland, formerly Vice-Chancellor of UNSW, or maybe still, he's chairman, he knows they're stuffed. Yeah. And he basically goes to Fairfax and says, please. Yes. And they go, meh. That's right. Well, they said they were too busy. They had the Olympics and they had all sorts of other things and they weren't really interested. Again, in defence of Fairfax, and this is the one that is so interesting, because in defence of Fairfax I'll say, well, they would be fearful of cannibalisation of, you know, if, if they buy a digital company that's going to put all their real massive, fabulous, prop, you know, money pumping in from property ads and they buy a company that's going to put it online or that has got it online, you know, does that cannibalise their main business? How do they make that decision? And their brain, you know, so they decided not to. They told them, gave them the, you know, the push off. And the company was at about 20 cents and they were literally um, on the beach dying and they'd called in the auditors and, the, you know, working out how to pay out the long service leave and would they have enough money to pay people's entitlements. And one of the directors said, um, the famous C Sydney real estate uh, guy, John McGrath, knew Lachlan Murdoch from the social circuit and the art galleries and so on. He rang young Lachlan and said, can we have a drink quick? I've got this company, I need help. And uh, Lachlan, now, you know, Lachlan's a young guy. It's around about 2,000 or thereabouts. And uh, um, Lachlan agrees to invest a small amount in the company. So the interesting thing to me about that, that story is they're on the beach, they're just about to drown and they're going to be gone as a, as a little online property company. Lachlan invests $2 million and gives them branding rights across his newspapers. It's, it's 2.25 and about seven in contra. Yes, so it's a total of $10 million. Yeah. Doesn't get his father's permission, just does it. Um, sort of said that he got his father's permission, but his father uh, says he doesn't remember that. 
um, when I did interview Rupert very it's briefly. It's turned out later that Rupert that. doesn't remember quite a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> Might have just forgotten about yep. it. But uh, so in terms of the cannibalisation, maybe the difference there was Lachlan was a young guy and they're more interested in digital and the internet and so on. So maybe because Lachlan's a young guy, he gets it about the net because he was chief executive of news at the time. So he invests the $10 million and invests more and spends more later and builds that company up. He protects it from his classified print executives at News Corp. They're not allowed to go and squash it, which is what print um, classified salesmen want to do. They want to squash the internet in those days. Lachlan protects it and he says, no, nah, you're not going to do that. So interestingly, he did what fair, that's the only, that's the point of difference is that when it comes to Lachlan, I'm not saying he was a genius, but he did do that deal. He gave, it a, he gave it a spin, and it's now grown from his $10 million. News Corp's got 62% or mm. thereabouts of, um, of they that got 44 initially, and they've, they've pushed it up. And he fought, fought to keep it a couple of times. He, could, they fought, could have, he fought they very could have hard to it. keep it, yep. Um, and it's doubled in price since he fought to keep it even two years ago. I think James Packett said it's the media deal of the last 25 years. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting and so much money now in that online digital space. And so Fairfax did have a go at getting those deals. You know, I, I mean, I'm an old Fairfax person for many, many, many years and uh, it's hard for me to say, so what a bunch of idiots they were, but, but they You're didn't going to say it anyway, aren't pick you? up... Uh, what I will say is they didn't pick up the opportunity any, in any of those um, scenarios and so much was lost. So it's, a, it's a hard thing to do because in each of those three cases, it would have meant cannibalising their own business. It would have, yes. And that's a, you know, that those businesses were still pulling in a lot of money, I think especially was, in 2000. Yes, I think it was a very, very tough um, situation probably for the Fairfax board. There was no, the, the chief, first chief executive that Fairfax had who actually got it was a guy called David Kirk and he was there in the mid-2000s. This is the former rugby player and yes, doctor and yes, Rhodes Scholar yes. from New Zealand. Very, very bright individual. So he comes in, he, ta he gets calls for all the paperwork that Fairfax has got, all the records of everything and looks at the internet class and looks at Fairfax's classifieds to see how much revenue we've still got coming in. He sees that over here is all the digital companies and all the money's gone out there, all our classifieds ads, our print ad line ads, because they you get a, a packet out of them. You know, a little single line you can get a dollar for it. You know, it's just it's just like money. It's just it's dripping. A fantastic markup. Dripping <laughs> margins is what is the term they use. Dripping margins, um, and and it all was going out the door. And so, so much of it was lost that David Kirk did what he called a heat map to show where it was gone, and it was gone, 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 dead gone and he just regarded it as an emergency for the company this is mid 2000s and he went and fought for the first person who beat James Packer in that digital space he went to New Zealand and fought almost hand-to-hand -hand combat um, with stealth to buy a company called Trade Me and uh, that was it's like eBay in New mm. Zealand which you know you might think oh who cares but actually it was very very valuable company and he got it. James Packer was furious, David Kirk got it and Kirk understood the digital space and he started buying digital companies which are the companies that Fairfax has relied on now in recent years in the aftermath of Kirk who lost his own job in a power play. That's it. He, he was only there two years, um, wasn't Yeah, he? but he, did, he, he built up the digital properties for the company in a very significant way. Alright, so so far, and we haven't really named other names yet, but we have one person 
whose fault it was not. David Kirk. There's plenty of fault to go around though, isn't there? Well, there probably is. Perhaps we just call it mis miscalculation or lost opportunities. Well, no, I'll, I'll press you a bit, a, a little. <laughs> what about the smartest guy in the room, Fred Hilmer? Well, um, I think he was Fred, there a long time. Fred was there a long time, and uh, he was very definitely um, of an earlier generation. And even though he had he had come out of management, he'd come out of management school, and he was a management expert. He was not out of media, and I think he sought to change the culture of Fairfax. But because he came out of management, perhaps he, you know, the, the, looking into that digital space, he kept looking at companies that were in the digital space to buy, but he didn't buy them. So I don't know what happened. I was overseas for a lot of the period in which that, that happened. I came back to find the company much changed. I was living in America and uh, Fairfax was much changed. Uh, and somehow or other we had not picked up those opportunities. So you can all, all I can think is that people of a different era but who were also well fixed in the space of protecting print and print classifieds and maybe didn't believe that the internet would take over or I mean at the end of the book Fred uh, there's a quote from Fred where he said to me it was always obvious that uh, this was going to happen and perhaps what we should have really done all those years ago was sell the newspapers and start again so I think perhaps he felt that in some way defeated at some point as to how you would contend with the digital classifieds what? without destroying your own print. But anyway, Lachlan Murdoch managed to hold it over on mm. the side. Not the whole, you know, and I would say that they did plenty of things wrong over at News Corp as well, but they did do that one thing right. What about the boards? Mm. You know, if you go back... One of the traditions at Fairfax is that they don't have people who know anything about the media on the boards. Um, and I think you can see that if you read this book, the decisions the boards took, that they never really understood what they were getting into. They understood the business they'd been in. Mm. That's, I think that's when you say that when you say they didn't get understand the business they were getting into, do you mean the digital mm. era? I, I understood they had two right. businesses. They had, they had the newspaper businesses. They had the journalism business, which didn't make any money, yeah. and they had the classifieds, which made a mozza, which mm. paid for everything else. Mm. And got that. Yes, and everyone was a bit upside down. The journalists, and I'd certainly include myself in this at the forefront of thinking this, we thought that the journalism was what carried the newspaper company. And we were, you know, 20 years ago, um, 15 years ago, quite scathing about the role of the commercial side of the company. We didn't like it coming across and touching us, you know, have a strike at the drop of a hat if somebody found that someone from commercial was trying to put an ad on the same page as the story about a bank and, you know... Etc. Etc. So you know, everybody'd do a walkout. It'd be a walkout if someone from upstairs in management had phoned someone on the editorial floor. And I look back. We, you know, we felt all powerful. You'd get through the shoes, wouldn't you? <laughs> so you really felt as though journalism was what carried Fairfax. And as we now know, the commercial side of the company very significantly carried Fairfax. Um, with the board, I guess they they were from a different era, and they also can I say that they didn't understand the digital... They must have been looking at the digital issue at their board meetings. Somehow, I guess, Fairfax was so big and so strong 
that they might have felt that they would be able to hold that wall and hold the wall against You actually the incursion. recount an episode in which they're explicitly told uh, by Eric Beecher, mm. who did a report for them. Now, Eric can be a, um, a prickly and combative and he's a big personality. Yeah. He has firm opinions. Yeah. He, he might have got a few backs up, but he, yeah. he really spelled it out, didn't he? This is in about 2004. Yes, um, just but it's not long before David Kirk came in, I think it was. I might have lost my um, uh, date line there. But um, he spelled it out. This was a very contentious report because um, uh, it was a report that said it was, he came in as something of a consultant and uh, he said that, he w was, that the company was going the wrong way in every way and that the digital was being missed. You know, he really laid it down. Um, and there's, there's a famous highly contested incident, which is that um, he, he said that Roger Corbett, then a director, picked up the Sydney Morning Herald and threw it down on the t boardroom table and said, you know, I, don't, I won't be listening to anybody who, who tries to tell me that people won't turn to this first. This is the Saturday edition. The Saturday edition. The In those Saturday days, when you, if you dropped it on your foot, you might have hurt yourself. You could break your front door down if you, someone, the paperboy threw it often enough on a Saturday, you know, and smashed the door in. Um, they're so heavy. Now, Corbett denies that he said that. And I did interview both, um, uh, both of the uh, uh, sides of this story. And... Corbett was good enough to speak to me and give me his side of the story, and he says he doesn't remember doing that. Beecher says he does, and but you know, so Beecher made that warning. Then David Kirk came in and he produced his heat map of all of the class. You know, so much of the classifieds was gone. I think the cars, the autos, at that point was dead. I think he felt that it was just a sea of red. But you know, do you want me to? I'll just to to be on the safe side of um, defamation. Maybe what I could do is read you, because um, um, I have to be a little careful. Uh, if you're I'll tweeting word you for a... word, make sure you get this right. <laughs> now, there's a, um, late in the book, there's a, there's a chief executive who came after David Kirk called Brian McCarthy, who most at Fairfax would say, you know, was um, uh, not a forward-looking individual. Old Brian school. Would, old school. Brian would disagree with that. He'd made a huge company out of Rural Press. Rural Press, which Fairfax bought, was, however, a different sort of a company to a massive, sophisticated, metropolitan daily newspaper set of papers trying to negotiate their way into the new world with very feisty and very strong journalistic traditions of which it was very proud. So McCarthy sort of came head-to-head -head into that um, he didn't like Kirk, who he thought knew nothing about newspapers, and he sort of clashed with the Fairfax culture. However, um, just before McCarthy himself was sacked, um, McCarthy... Uh, so this is McCarthy, just as he's about to get sacked himself and he's worked out that he too is going to bite the dust. So he said to me... Um, He'd been using some consultants. No, it's the board had been using consultants. And McCarthy did not like management consultants. And he said to me, so this was his quote, he said, there were signals that my future was not looking too bright and that if it came to a showdown, I'd lose. A couple of directors had told me. But I never changed my view that most of the directors had no media experience, so why would I listen to them? And my view was I wasn't going to work in a compromised situation. 
So, you know, I think from the words of a chief executive in regard to mm. the Fairfax board, that's only a few short years ago. And that was his view. Now, he was in the middle of a power play where he was getting fired. So, you know, perhaps he had... But that was why, because he was fighting with the board. Let's, let's talk about now and, and the future. Greg Highwood, what are his chances, do you think? His chances of... Survival, turning the not company. him turning the company around. Yeah. Well, I think I think you can't really you probably can't turn Fairfax around to become what it once was, no. because it's so slimmed down now, and the media landscape has changed for all newspaper companies everywhere. But you could make a good business that gets a small margin. It'll never be the business that got such a whopping margin. No, it won't. Um, and I think what he's been trying to do, and clearly stating it, is to reduce the cost base of the company, you know, drastically. We've had massive, massive rounds of redundancy after redundancy, selling off the big digital companies like TradeMe and uh, Stays.com, all been sold to sort of fund paying down debt. He's tried to get the company debt-free, so he's, he's pretty much got to try and get a much, much smaller company. Um, people will know from reading the papers that the business sections of the Financial Review and the Sydney Morning Herald have been merged, so read the same things in both papers, and they're both run out of the same newsroom. These are very, you know, in years gone by, these would have been actions that people would have been just horrified by, and maybe many are today. But on the other hand, you know, there, the argument I think that Highwood would make is that, you know, he has to cut the cloth to save the company. And so I think he believes that this is the right strategy to reduce very dramatically the, the cost in the company, reduce the overheads, reduce the staff, reduce the journalists. Now, is this going to work and where will the revenue come from? There's, you know, print still provides about 70%, mm. 70 to 80%, the actual print products still provide 70 or 80% of the revenue of Fairfax, not the digital products, but they're trying to get it go online. But, you know, the question is, at what pace do you do that and do you, you know, do you sort of do so much, you know, do the, does the print product get paired back so much that you start to lose the revenue from, from the print product while you're getting on to becoming an all-digital company for in years to come, which and how does that start to pay the salaries of the journalists? Because mm. if you can't pay the salaries of the journalists, then you don't have newspapers. And if you don't have the newspapers, be they digital or in print, then what you've got is um, an online property company called Domain and some marketing and events. So that's a very different company, and that's you know that is what's happened to a lot of and we don't have the around the world the and you don't have the fair, the fairfax journalism which remains you know it might have had a lot of bashing in recent years but it remains you know strong and forthright and people i think probably still love their sydney morning herald and the business community still buys the fin review so can i would turn it around it's you look it's the 64 million dollar question can he turn it around can he save it can you know can the revenue stay you know can the revenue grow from the di from putting the papers online, will people pay for online newspapers? I don't know how many people in this room will pay for the Sydney Morning Herald online only. You know, will when does that start to sort of take over from the print? See, revenue? I'm in the I'm in the and many maybe others are too. I'm I see it at work yeah. through a, a work online yes. um, subscription. Yeah. We've stopped getting the one at home, except on Saturdays. Right, yeah. Because 
So you that's what's happening. So yeah, the and circulation I would not be alone in that. That's it, yeah. But yet the revenue that, that sustains Fairfax and Fairfax's journalism remains 70% out of the print product, at least, possibly more. The rest of it is bits and pieces of, you know, domain and, you know, marketing and things like that that they're trying to build up. So it's a pretty hard road to hoe and I guess each chief executive makes their own call about how they're going to do it and it is a very, very conflicted fight between media companies as to whether you stick really heavily with the newspapers while building a digital strategy or whether you uh, you know steer a lot more towards mm. the digital strategy well, and Fairfax take is, the risk. Fairfax is doing that and news yeah. is more or less doing the other. Yeah. I wouldn't wouldn't want to be in Greg Highwood's shoes for no. quids. In my youth there was a Ian Jury had a song called Reasons to be Cheerful part 3. <laughs> Can you think of some reasons to be cheerful? It doesn't have to be about... It could be about Australian newspapers or Australian journalism. Yeah, well, look, I've said this quite a bit um, lately. In fact, um, you know, I was in uh, Shanghai earlier this year um, speaking at a writers' festival and I did. I, I, I talked a lot about two things. One thing was about Fairfax in, in areas where we, there I was talking to media students, but I also talked to um, lots of students at university about the future of media. Um, at various venues and you know I always say that I'm actually quite optimistic um, about media because no one has been able to persuade me yet that great news breaking and great um, long-form journalism is going out of fashion. Now if you look at people who are young people who are living by Twitter all the time and who are using these consolidation sites that pull in stuff from everywhere so they can set up their feed and get the stuff that they want to read and it's all custom set for themselves what they want. And you know I look at the people's Twitter accounts and they've got the New York Times coming in from here and they've got something from a you know a paper in London and they've got, they might have um, some stuff from ProPublica in New York, they might have some of the newspapers here, they'll have lots of other things that they like, like BuzzFeed and things, but when you look behind BuzzFeed, etc., then you find more pulling in consolidation from working journalists. Someone's got so, to pay for it. Someone's got to pay for it. So I actually, look, I'm optimistic, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I am optimistic that... Um, that journalism is not going to be disappearing. Um, for example, now I know this is a very specialist area of Vanity Fair, highly specialist, and you know every journalist would love to work for Vanity Fair. But you know Vanity Fair gets going on its its profile of Monica Lewinsky a few months ago. They produced it or a month ago. Everybody reads it around the world. Long form journalism, a cracking you know scoop if you're interested in that sort of thing. You know Monica talking all these years later. You know there is a great great role for journalism. People, you know the great um, far flung foreign correspondents of the New York Times, who bring the most incredible courageous reporting and the New Yorker magazine in from all of the war zones around the world with the same courage and and beautiful writing that they always did. People are pulling all this stuff in on their Twitter feeds and all their other consolidators and I think that quality will last. And so maybe all the media companies won't last but the big ones with the big brand names I think will. I think you know the, you know, the Wall Street Journals and the New York Timeses and you know, the Times of London and the Financial Times, lots of them will 
I think those great big global brands, I think they will find a way to survive and maybe the smaller minnows might come along you know, in yep. their wake. Not all those I, global... I am optimistic because I don't think people can live without it. Not all those global brands are the New York Times. You've got the Mail Online as well, and they're going to be one of the survivors. Well, that's right. Of course, taking the journalism paid for by others. If you were starting again, if you're at uni now, journalism or something... Because I've, I've wondered about this. I think, can could I in all conscience say to a young person, yes, I mean, I've had a brilliant time. It's been so interesting. Yeah. But I don't know if a, you know, a bright-eyed 20-year-old said to me, what do you think? If I'd say, yeah, go for your life. I don't know. I, I, think, I think I'm optimistic too, but I just don't see how we get through the next 10 years. Mm. Well, you know, there's a lot of people still being paid in journalism. And uh, look, if, so I was, if I was at university, actually, I'd say, I don't want to do journalism. I want to be a, a novelist and I will, you know, I will choose to live on nothing and become a novelist instead. That would be my, you know, dream thing. But um, uh, what I will say is that I know a lot of young journalists, very young journalists, recent years trainees, in the place that I know best, the Financial Review newsroom, even though I'm um, having a sabbatical this year, um, uh, to have a go at that novel, um, and I've got nowhere with it because really I'm a non-fiction writer. But, um, and haven't you actually left the fin? Haven't no, you, I have left you've the taken fin, yeah, so I'm yeah. having a sabbatical from journalism. Oh, right. Um, but so I, but I know a lot of the young trainees in the newsrooms, in the newsroom of the Financial Review, and they are simply without exception. They are so fabulous. They've only been in journalism two, three, four, five years, so they've been flooding in. I used to talk to the trainees, and they're so smart, they're so driven. They get on the front page so fast, they crawl through wet cement over broken glass to get themselves on the front page. I mean, they work so hard, they're so bright, and they love journalism, and they're all getting ahead. Now, I know the media schools uh, are full of lots and lots of journalists, and where are they all going to work? Yes, I know that that is, you know, because we don't have the spread of media we did. But new models will come along, and at my age, um, I guess I don't know what all of those new models are going to be. I've got an idea about a few of them, but um, we don't have time to talk about those at the moment. But I will tell you that the young journalists, the trainees that I know, I'm th I'm th I can think of half a dozen at the moment um, from recent years, are so fantastic, and they did... I just can't tell you what they did to get into journalism, mm. you know. One of them gave up a massive job in advertising. You know, another one gave up some a job in... Uh, I know one who gave up a job uh, as an actor that her parents had dreamed she'd have forever. Someone else, you know, went through two or three selection rounds to get in and is now just, you know, blasting them out of the rafters as a journalist. So, you know... I, I, about three weeks ago, I interviewed um, three of the young Walkley winners, actually. Flip, flip set that up. And um, they were just so impressive, deeply impressive. Yeah. Look, I'm going to stop asking questions because I know we've got a room full of people who want to ask you questions. We also have a microphone, so if you've got a question, get your hand up. We'll get it to you if you don't mind saying who you are. And remember that little homily I gave earlier. Uh, Fred Woolard, um, uh, you've spoken a lot about Fairfax. I'd be interested to hear your views about the print side of, uh, of News Limited. We all know about realestate.com and how fabulous that is. I'm interested in hearing about the Aussie um, print business for them and what your view of it going forward looks like. 
Uh, you mean News Corporation? Uh, you, do you mean the whole of News Corp around the world? Or you mean just the Australian end? Oh, the Australian. Well, it's the, no, so the Australian yeah. end of News Corp. Yeah. Right. Well, obviously, it's well, very well supported by Murdoch. He is obviously determined to keep funding it, um, to fund all of his newspaper operations. He's clearly, if we look at the um, uh, the massive parade of of um, people who've been at the gala dinners that they've had in recent days. Um, you know, everybody has come to pay court to Rupert. Uh, Rupert's made it clear that the Australian is, you know, one of his greatest, um, you know, and proudest sort of moments. And I think he's probably had some moments that were extremely not proud in recent years with his London papers. Um, but he obviously is determined to keep supporting the Australian. Um, and is very proud of it. So I think you know that's a newspaper that is 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 going to keep going. Rupert, uh, who knows how long a company will stay together or when a company will break up, but it's a very strong company. And if it's going out and trying to buy Time Warner with the other side of the coin, with its 21st Century Fox, which we've seen overnight, you know, you're talking about a very vibrant, um, financially vibrant pair of companies. You know, there's a lot of argument about how much money the Australian makes. Um, or loses. Or loses. I don't think any newspaper company at the moment particularly wants to be um, saying that they're making buckets of money. If you're asking me about um, the political um, direction of the Australian, I think that that's something that um, you really, everyone has to make their own mind up. But, you know, it's a very strong newspaper. I have a, a lot of friends who work there, and I think a lot of them are very fine journalists. Um, but, you know, it's a newspaper which takes a very, very strong stand, which can be highly controversial, um, and people have to make up their own mind whether they like that or not. It's really not for me to say. Another question. Down the front in the middle. <clears throat> My, my name is Angela Warren. What about the Guardian Weekly? That seems to have picked up quite a number of the Fairfax journalists. What do you think about that? It seems to me to have some really strong articles. Yes, well, like, look, I think that it's a bit like with uh, News or any of the other companies. A, a company that's hiring journalists, I think, it, it is great. You know, Fairfax has had to go through a difficult series of decisions about what it can afford and they've made a lot of those decisions and hopefully a lot of that is behind them and that there won't be too much more redundancy. But in the process, a lot of people did leave the company and, uh, you know, quite a number of them got jobs at The Guardian. Also, some of those who left to go to The Guardian rather than even taking a redundancy. You know, The Guardian did very well at soaking up some extremely high-profile journalists, including a lot who who took redundancy, like David Ma, um, and, you know, they're, they're turning themselves into, you know, they're trying to turn themselves into a very viable competition and competitive role against Fairfax in that digital space. So, but I've just got, you know, I'm going to applaud anyone who is hiring journalists. They have the advantage at the moment of, you know, they're, they're not making money yet. That's right. Um, but they're being very well supported. Very well supported, again, by a company that has, you know, some... Deep pockets. Deep, deep pockets with independent financing, even though it might not be as deep as they once were. And that's kind of what you've got. You know, you've got to look at these companies and see who can afford to pay journalists. And I really think 
as we go on this incredible journey, which is very difficult for many people, um, towards what is going to be the new models, and I think there will be new models because, as I say, I'm optimistic. I don't think people will do without the reporting that they need in their midst and to live their lives and to explain the world that we live in. Um, but it's a long, a long track and it's a difficult track, and anyone who has got the pockets to pay journalists as we go along and get to where we're going, you know, th th I, I think that's fantastic, whichever, whatever companies they are. Another question, there's one down the front. <clears throat> On this far side. Thanks. Uh, Alison Bevage. I was wondering, um, there was one other person who saw the writing on the wall early on, and that was Alan Kohler, and he left and made his own, you know, business spectator Dead. and then sold it to Rupert for squillions. Um, is Fairfax watching him and his model now and thinking about that in terms of a possible venture? Look, I don't know what Fairfax uh, in that um, business space is thinking about doing. Um, I think Fairfax is, you know, and I can't speak for Fairfax, but um, I would guess that they would be saying, well, there's Cola, sure, and you know, and it is right. Cola left the Fin Review some years ago, and he did go out and set up, you know, Business Spectator and so on. And 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 yes, he he made plenty of money, and he's a you know highly respected business commentator and journalist. He's been fantastic, and and he always saw it. And back in the days when Seek was sort of just getting going, Cola always was writing and saying, everybody better watch out. With a lot of other journalists, I might add. Not many people followed the rise of car sales or realestate.com, but they did follow Seek for a year or so around the time Packer uh, invested, um, and Cola was certainly one of them who was out there. So um, I think, but in a nutshell, I think Fairfax, in terms of looking at Cola's online venture, would say, well, excuse us, we've got the financial review and we're going online. So they, w you know, I think that would be Fairfax's view, is that they've already got um, uh, the venture and it's the market leader and it's got one of the best um, media brand names in the country which is Australian Financial Review and you know they would I think I think I may be quite wrong they might be hatching some fabulous new thing that I know nothing about it's <laughs> <coughs> a good question are there any more I've got oh we've got one I was gonna say I've got one more but there's one up there just while we're waiting to get the mic to you, the book is wonderful and uh, it's a terrific story and it's really well told. But I just wondered about you personally writing it because you're not writing about something that you don't care about, you don't love actually. And it must have been, it must have been a slightly odd, sort of bittersweet thing to do. Mm, yeah, it, it was actually, it was. It was, it was difficult and uh, I kept thinking, I'll try and, you know, I didn't want to tear the place apart but I wanted to know what happened and you know as, as a journalist once you get into a story it's very hard to sort of pull back and think oh I think I'll just reverse out of this because I'm finding things that really aren't, aren't so great so it was uncomfortable it was uncomfortable it was difficult um, and I felt um, I felt as though I had come I had found my way into a story that even though at the beginning I'd been told this was the story, the more work I did, the more I found that it was right. I was, you know, that the, all the postulations I'd heard were correct. 
as opposed to them turning, falling to the ground and turning out to be exaggerations by various, you know, players around the place. So a lot of a lot of it was right. Some of it fell to the ground, but it was very it was very difficult, and I felt, you know, that it was just I felt as though it was such a, a tragic thing that Fairfax had had a chance to hang on to or to get its hands on one, two, at least of these digital companies. And I've often thought, and I still do what the company would be like today had that happened. Now, you know, we can all say just, what if? You can do that all your life about every element of it. But I kept thinking, and, the, and I must say, I, it made me angry. It did make me angry. I kept thinking, just look at what we could have had. And we could have been perhaps the one company who, unlike the uh, international newspaper companies who didn't get hold of uh, digital um, advertising, but they all have display advertising. Fairfax had the classifiers where the money is. I said it's dripping in margins. It's one little line. It's not a great big picture that big. It's one little line, and you get a dollar. You know, so just money flooding in like that's why they called it the rivers of mm -hmm. gold. And so, had Fairfax hang on to it, got got its hands on a couple of them, I have said to myself five trillion times, if only, and just imagine. So I guess where I ended up was kind of a bit deeply disappointed, deeply disappointed, and I felt very let down. That question. <clears throat> I apologise if this isn't articulated particularly well, but I just wanted to hear more on your insights as to the new models because when we're talking about revenue and where it's going to come from to pay journalists, there is, I feel, as a young person, a concern now that um, bigger companies like Facebook and Amazon take a big share of ad sales internationally. And um, if not for public benefactors paying for journalism, then perhaps these companies will be acquired by bigger international companies and then maybe the integrity of the journalism that we are getting in the future will be compromised. Well, that's a good question, um, and I think it's a question that a lot of young journalists are asking. Um, I may have um, blinkers on here, but from what I can see, and I'll be very simplistic about this, in the old days, media companies, newspaper companies were, we thought it was all journalism and a little bit of a few ads on the side. In actual fact, it was a lot of ads and fabulous journalism, you know, one carried the other, but certainly one side paid the bill. So you had advertising and it paid for the journalism. Um, now, as the model's broken and those two things have separated, so you've got the journalism floating around, you've got the advertising floating around, but we are seeing on one, just one track of a new model, which is, for example, um, and I know I'm going to forget one of these examples here, in, uh, but... Um, one of them is Amazon has come out and bought some months ago the Washington Post. So a great big commercial, should we call it advertising for the want of another word, has bought newspaper, clipped it on the side. Now one has, it may fund the other. Jeff Bezos who um, started Amazon and who has bought the Washington Post. I think he's bought it in his private capacity, but sure as eggs, before too long, we'll find that, you know, his money comes out of Amazon. And so that's funding the Washington Post. Now, there's a few examples like this around the world. It's similar to people who've set up some philanthropic foundations like ProPublica, where a big bucket of money is there on the side that they've made in their commercial interests. 
They put a wall down the middle and they say, right, here's the money for the journalism. Um, at News Corporation, now that Rupert split the company, you've got, uh, um, put aside Fox because they would say that's media, but you've got realestate.com, so it's a great big fat piece of advertising money flowing around and that's paying for, um, or that's hooked up into, new, it's part of News Corporation, so again you've got, digital, you've got digital advertising paying for or paying money into a company that pays journalists might not pay them directly, but it flows into that exact same company and that's paying for the journalism. So I think that is going to start happening more and more, that um, you have big companies that buy newspapers. It, there's a one or two others that, are, you know, for the life of me, I can't remember, that are quite significant. Um, and, and that's really one of the models that we might see is... Um, you know, I've always wondered whether, for example, a company like Seek might one day decide to buy, I don't know, the Financial Review and maybe hook it onto the side and say, well, now we've got a newspaper as well and, uh, you know, we'll fund that. that. These, these things are possible. I mean, it's highly, it's hypothetical. I'm being speculative, but I'm saying that there are many models that are possible and people will open their minds and you know, things will come to pass that we can't see yet. We just can't see it. Just like yesterday morning, we couldn't see that Rupert Murdoch was going to buy Time Warner. You know, things suddenly happen and you find someone's got this idea and they're out there and they... He's got know. his mojo back, I have to say. <laughs> have we got time for one more, Flip? Uh, it's Kate Richardson. I was just interested, just picking up on the new models, what your thoughts are on brands in the publishing space. So we've got Amanda Gomes from Private Media and Andrew Cornell from the Fin Review who've recently started working at ANZ Bank and are now publishing ANZ Blue Notes, um, essentially a, a, what they're calling a thought leadership um, business publication. So I was just interested to know. They're, they're very much maintaining that, um, you know, it, it, despite the fact it's it's obviously coming from a bank, that it's about, you know, independent um, publishing and that audiences are, are willing to, you know, as long as they're transparent about that, uh, that audiences are, are kind of willing to accept um, that news coming from a bank and do see value in it. Yeah, well, Andrew Cornell is a marvellous journalist and a former colleague of mine, um, very talented. And so, yes, he has set up this thing. This is a, it's, that's at a very tiny end of a sort of a new model. So a bank's now set up a newsroom and you, we're all going, a bank has set up a newsroom. Um, OK, well... They, bank, they won't be the last, though, will they? They won't be the last. That's right. They're probably by no means the first, but they're quite a prominent. It's a very important example to raise because it's being discussed everywhere. Is that a PR operation or is it a newsroom? No-one knows yet because it's, it's so new in its, um, in its recent incarnation. But it's you know it's a really fascinating subject. Is how independent is it? You know how you know what happens if the chips are down? The bank's in big trouble. You know what's the newsroom going to write about it on their on their on their online site? I don't know. I think we have to wait and see on that one. But isn't it? It's very interesting. Who would have thought ten years ago? Bank sets up a newsroom, starts hiring journalists. Again. I'm for anyone who's hiring journalists at the moment and let, let's see where some of this goes. It is it, apparently. I'm sorry about that. Um. Thank you very much for this evening. It's not a Walkley, but we'll get you <laughs> <laughs> nearly as high. <laughs> Thank you very much.